choir, thank you. Thank you for worshiping this morning. Let's study God's Word. Uh, Our study this morning is going to be from two passages in the book of Psalms. And then uh, hopefully we'll have some time at the end. We'll look at a very important verse in the book of Romans in chapter 16. So let's take our Bibles and turn to Psalm chapter 24. I was driving through southern Indiana a few weeks ago. Uh, Is anybody from southern Indiana? Uh, It's pretty boring down there, isn't it? Southern Indiana. There was not much to do. And uh, we were at that point of the trip where everybody was on their electronics except for me. I was driving through southern Indiana, which is always a delight. And uh, I was still um, really trying to calm down my frustration after having sat for an hour and a half in Louisville um, in a traffic jam that moved two miles in an hour and a half, which was fun. Uh, Not by any means was that fun. And I was having less than sacrificial thoughts about the city of Louisville for a while because there was only one way through and it was on a bridge and I couldn't get off the bridge because I was in the traffic jam. But as I thought and prayed about a lot of different things and um, tried to calm my heart a little bit and was seeking the Lord about what to do this summer, whether we take a break from the book of Acts and, and kind of pursue some other topics, the Lord, as I drove through some remote part of southern Indiana that looked like all the other remote parts of southern Indiana, the Lord impressed upon my heart a, a phrase that's really stuck with me. And it was just four words, just kind of driving along, and I just heard these words. I'm not being mystical when I say that. It was just as I'm praying and thinking, these words came out. And the words were, the summer of selflessness. The summer of selflessness. Now, I didn't view that as a big sermon series or anything. We didn't do a, a slide for it or anything, and I haven't really pursued passages or concepts that support it. It was just kind of an underlying theme in my heart that uh, I thought would be important for us to study. And it's been very interesting how the Lord has prepared that because He knew some of the things that we'd be dealing with over the last month. And He was already ahead of us, as He always is, uh, showing us this uh, concept of selflessness. Now, we started a few weeks back with a study on the concept of sacrifice, And then we saw about asking for wisdom and the need for wisdom in our lives. And then last week we talked about living under Christ's lordship. And not surprisingly, as we have done that, the enemy has responded with a very strong attack. And we need to be reminded, and this is kind of a constant reminder, that uh, the enemy wants this church. He wants every church that preaches the gospel. He wants every marriage. He wants every relationship that's in the Lord. He wants our kids. He wants all of it. He wants to divide and he wants to try to conquer, even though he knows conquering is only for now and not for eternity. But he wants that. And he wants to damage the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he wants to hinder the church of Jesus Christ in southeast Wisconsin. He wants to hinder the church of Jesus Christ in the United States. And he's making some headway in that. And he's shown that in very subtle ways and in other very overt ways. So we need to continually be sober and be alert. We need to make sure that we don't contribute to this in any way or help in any way. And we need to resist anything that would uh, pull us or this church into that. Now, I was up in Green Bay this week at a gathering of some pastors, just a small gathering. and, And the messages that I heard there really stood out to me because they all fit within this. And then, uh, as I started to think through and pray through this morning, 
the Lord led me to these passages in the middle of the week, and it all fit together to give us the right perspective. These two passages, Psalm 24 and Psalm 15, show us that our God is holy and He's righteous. We know that, right? He's holy and He's righteous. There's no impurity in Him. And we, as human beings who have a sin nature, who are fallen, who all come short of the glory of God, we as human beings have no right and no ability to come near to Him on our own. Our unworthiness before God cannot be overstated. And on face value, just on pure face value of humanity, it's ridiculous to think that we would ever be able to abide in the presence of the Holy God. And yet, the love and mercy of God is such that He declares us worthy when we trust in Christ. He makes us worthy. And He calls us to live in a way that exemplifies and honors Him. And as we do that, He allows us to come near to Him. Now, I want you just to let that sentence settle into your heart a little bit because it's hot and it's July and we've got other things on our mind. But I want you to really think about what we just said. We have a holy, pure God who, for all intents and purposes, should be unapproachable. We are as fallen as it gets, full of sin, full of self. And yet God, through Christ, declares us righteous, declares us worthy, declares us His children, makes us worthy, changes us to be worthy, and calls us to live in a way where we can walk into His presence as worthy children. That is amazing. That is incredible that God does that. And because He does that, it changes everything in how we live. Now let's look here just at a couple verses this morning. Start in chapter 24. Let's read a couple verses here and then we'll go over to chapter 15. But look at chapter 24 starting in verse 3. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in His holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully, he shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, even Jacob. Now go back a couple pages to chapter 15. And let's read the first three verses of Psalm 15. O Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. He does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. Now, we've seen in both texts that David talks about living and dwelling and abiding and ascending up to this holy hill. And we're not 100% sure why he uses that concept, but knowing the topography of Jerusalem and knowing certain events that happened in the Old Testament, uh, we can be reasonably sure that these Psalms were written during the times when the Ark of the Covenant was brought up to Jerusalem. There were two times where that happened. The first was in First Chronicles chapter 15, when the temple hadn't been built yet. And David makes a tent in the city of Jerusalem for the ark, and they carry it up to a section of Jerusalem known as the city of David. It was a little section in, in the city of Jerusalem. And all the people were there. If you look at it, you can read it and study it later. 
all the people were there and the choir was singing and the priests were ministering and others were playing instrument. And David literally was jumping for joy. He was celebrating and dancing, so to speak, uh, in front of the ark. His wife, who was Saul's daughter, looks out the window and is very resentful and has hatred for him because her heart's not right. But David is just celebrating and worshiping God before the Ark of the Covenant as they bring it up. Now, a couple chapters later, in Second Chronicles chapter 5, the temple has been built. And Solomon, his son, has built it. And uh, this time they bring up the Ark to the actual temple, to the city of David, on what was called the Temple Mount. Now, the old city of Jerusalem is built on a plateau. And it's surrounded by three ravines that form one huge valley. So when you go into Jerusalem, you have to travel up. If you come from the west, excuse me, from the east, trying to remember my geology here, a geography, not geology, geography. If you come from the east, which is the Mount of Olives, you have to come down the mountain through what's called the Kidron Valley, which is where the Garden of Gethsemane is. And then you have to walk up a hill into Jerusalem. So every time you came to the Temple Mount of Jerusalem, you had to go up. Now let me show you a couple pictures that show this. The first one is a depiction, and I don't know how accurate this is, but it comes from a reasonable, uh, reliable resource, shows this valley that is around Jerusalem. And you can see on the front there that temple area. Let me show you a, another picture of this. This is a scale model that they've done in Jerusalem. And you can see how here the Temple Mount is very prominent right there. And you see the little ramp. That's a ramp that's coming up through the Kidron Valley up toward what's called the Golden Gate or the Eastern Gate. It's the only gate of Jerusalem right now that's closed. And it's closed because when Jesus comes back and puts his foot on the Mount of Olives, he's going to walk down the hill right from the place where he ascended into heaven. He's going to walk down the hill through the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's going to walk up the hill, and he's going to open that gate. And he's going to walk up onto the Temple Mount, which now, if you go to the next slide, please, which now has a mosque on it. This is one of the most holy places of Islam, and there's a great battle if you've ever studied anything about Jerusalem. And I was thinking last night, we should do just a study on Jerusalem, because it has four different quarters uh, where people live. And this uh, you can see where the Temple Mount is. You see the little gate right in front of it, sticking up above the wall? Everybody see that? More or less, I forgot my laser pointer this morning. Anyway, this is taken from the Mount of Olives. You can see the descent down the hill, and you can see how you would walk up the hill to the gate and go into the temple. Well, that's where everything was. The temple was on the highest point of the city. So it was the most visible place. So when David says, who can ascend to your holy hill... He's talking about going up to the Temple Mount. Now, taking the ark up there was a very significant moment. And it was a literal and figurative depiction of the preeminence of God and the fact of his greatness and holiness. So as they're bringing the ark of the covenant, which we know represented the presence of God, as they're bringing the ark of the covenant to Jerusalem, they're going up the mountain to the holy hill where God's presence would permanently reside in the Holy of Holies, which was the place where only the high priest could go, and that only once a year, and that only after a week of physical and spiritual purification. And he would go in there on the Day of Atonement, and he would make a sacrifice for sins. Now, there's no way to miss the symbolism 
or the intentional statement of worship that David is making here. But what's really amazing about the fact that they did this is that they walked with and alongside the Ark of the Covenant. What an awesome thing. That they would go with it. You remember in the Old Testament, when God's presence would fill the tabernacle, they would literally see the cloud come down and fill the tabernacle. All the people had to stay back. No one could come close. When Moses goes up to Sinai to receive the law, the people had to stay back, which was a problem because then they got complacent and started to sin. You could not approach the presence of God. Well, now the presence of God is going to be right in the middle of the city. And they're going to bring the Ark of the Covenant. And they're all walking alongside it, going up to the house of the Lord. Now that becomes even more powerful and more personal to us because we are called the temple of God. We are called the place where God's presence resides. And that's actually what happens when you are saved. The presence of God resides in you. The spirit of God resides in you and indwells you and fills you. And that's not only more wonderful than a building, that raises the bar on how we are supposed to live. Because while they ascended the holy hill to the presence of God and to his greatness and holiness, David uses that in these two passages, Psalm 24 and Psalm 15, as a call to have a fervent desire to honor God's greatness and God's holiness in our words and our actions. And he describes the extent to which we must be righteous and full of spiritual integrity to go in the presence of God, which was almost unthinkable back then. Back then, you didn't, you didn't go in the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest went in there. Only the high priest went to the presence of God. He stood between you, and if you had a need, he was the one in there. Jesus, when he comes to the cross and he dies and he rises again, he says, we don't need that anymore. You don't need a high priest. I'm your high priest. I'm the one who's going to take you into the Holy Holies. I'm going to tear apart the curtain. My blood's going to cleanse you. There's not any more sacrifice. This is it. This is enough. This atones for sin. And as you receive me, I'll now fill you with my own presence. Now, we know that the law has ended and we're saved by grace. And some may say, well, well, Comparing David's time to our time is kind of worthless because we live under different covenants. And God's chosen to save us. So we're already accepted, Paul. We're, we already ascend to the holy hill. That's true. But it misses one important component. Even though through Christ God's given us the gift of a transformed nature and he's given us a refined and renewed mind through Christ, we are still called, listen now, we are still called to choose to live that way daily. It doesn't matter what your theology is. That is a true statement. And if we look all throughout the New Testament, we see the verbs about how to live as disciples of Jesus Christ are all active, they're all imperative, and they're all elective. Deny yourself is an imperative. Take up your cross Daily is intentional. Flee youthful lusts is intentional. Abstain from sexual immorality is intentional. Put off sin and put on holiness. It's intentional. Can I switch the handheld? There we go. Is that okay? 
Everything is intentional. It's a choice that we're making based on our faith in Christ and based on our renewed mind to, to put off sin. That's why, look back at 24.4 for a second, that's why David defines the qualification for the ascent very simply. Who will ascend to the holy hill of God? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Well, we already have clean hands and a pure heart because Christ has saved me and he's forgiven me and he's declared me righteous and my sins and iniquities he remembers no more. Yes, that's true. But he also calls us to live that way daily because how many know how easy it is to fall back into sin? I'm saved and I'm redeemed and I hope you are and we're covered by the blood of Jesus Christ and God's forgiven us forever. Everybody say amen. But sin is still around, right? Anybody under temptation besides me? Anybody inclined to sin this week? Anybody committed, let's just say, just just one sin this week? Who will ascend to the holy hill of God? God doesn't take impurity. Who will come into the presence of God? He who has a clean hands and a pure heart. That's why when we pray, we don't just launch into, okay, God, here's what I need. No, we take time and say, Lord, cleanse me and purify me and search me and know me and see if there's any wicked way in me because I'm not going to come into your presence impure. Cleanse me. He who has a clean hands and a pure heart. Look at chapter 15 again. Similar statement. He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. The nouns here are strong. They have no equivocation. They literally mean, literally, completely innocent, free from guilt, and ethically right. And again, while that position is only accomplished through Christ, there's also a calling on our lives to sustain that and to live in that, not only by our holy choices, but also by seeking him. That's why I love, I know I keep telling you to turn back and forth, just a couple of pages. I love when you go back to chapter 24 and verse 6, I love that verse. It says, this is the generation of those who seek him. Now, I don't personally think that's true of our generation, but wouldn't it be awesome if it was? What would the country be like this morning if the Christians in this country were the generation that was known for seeking God? Not being clever, not trying to do this and that. Just just seeking the Lord. See, this is not just about prayer. On the first read, we kind of say, well, okay, he's talking about prayer. Yeah, he is talking about prayer. But he's also describing a heart that is completely sold out to self-sacrifice. He is talking about a heart that is completely sold out to walking in holiness. God has equipped us to do that. He's called us to do that. Now he tells us to do it. So when we read the words, he who has a clean hands and a pure heart, who hasn't lifted up his soul to lies, hasn't been deceitful, someone who walks in integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart and doesn't talk about and slander with his tongue or do evil to his neighbor nor scorn and shame his friend. The next question is, are you and am I one of the ones who wants that to be true of us? Do you want those statements to be true of you? Those who seek you. In other words, those who are earnestly asking him to do this in their lives, who are willing to do what it takes to live that way when he gives it to us. Those who are guarding it and guarding against it. 
those who are protecting their heart and guarding their mind from things that corrupt, those who are catching themselves before it starts, and if it does start, they're stopping it in its tracks, those who are purposely practicing practicing holiness, so those statements will be true of them. It's all about intentionality. It's not just a summer of selflessness. It's a lifestyle of selflessness. It's every day. Now, we know that's our responsibility because he fully equips us to live that way. We have everything pertaining to life and godliness. But we have to ask ourselves, am I neglecting the tools that God has given me to be equipped Am I tossing them aside and and saying, well, it doesn't matter? Am I ignoring my education? Am I ignoring the training that I get from the Word of God? Am Am I kind of dismissing the teaching that the Spirit gives as I study the Word and as I pray and, and the things that He convicts me about? Am I, am I kind of just saying, well, that's good and I'll get to that later and I'm not going to worry about that right now and I'm really busy and I've got a lot to do? Are, are we doing all that? Or daily do we say, I'm yielding myself to You, Lord, and I'm, I'm putting what You've given me to strong and active use. I heard a pastor say this week, that many churches are on a treadmill. They're just kind of running in place. They're never advancing. He was talking as much about uh, spirituality as he was about programs and all the other stuff. But I started to apply that thought to this passage. Is there a constant progression in your spiritual maturity from day to day? Are you growing in grace? Are you more loving? Are you more forgiving? Are you more sacrificial? Are are you more, uh, uh, do you have a greater heart for people? Are you growing in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you stagnant or are you really advancing in your understanding of the word? Is your faith more confident and more powerful than it's ever been? Do you love the Lord more than ever? Is his word your strength and his prayer uh, and prayer your refuge? Or is it the same it was in 2010, 2008, 2004? Maybe you've regressed even a little bit. See, the calling here is that we're supposed to ascend to the holy hill of God, but there are qualifications that we need to reach that. But then here's where it gets really interesting. Look back at Psalm 15. That's the last time I'll ask you to turn between the two. Because we'd expect most of the statements about holiness and purity and spiritual integrity and loving truth. Those are are a given, right? But there's one verse that stands out as being different from the others, like the old Sesame Street. Remember, one of these things is not like the others. One of these things just doesn't belong. I always loved that. I was very amused at my young age. I didn't have video games or anything. One thing kind of kind of doesn't seem like the other verses. It's more raw and more real life, and 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 kind of kind of I don't know. It's more personal. Look at what he says in chapter fifteen, verse three. He does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. The whole theme, the whole purpose of the verse 
the whole focus is on how we speak. What we say to each other and what we say about each other. And if we want to sum up the offenses in three simple words, it would be slander, sin, and scorn. Slander is designed to create doubt about somebody's character. It's usually accomplished through lies or through the shading of information to imply that there's something questionable or something unholy about the person's life. And that's usually how it's presented. Not as an outright statement of truth that's verifiable. Because if we speak outright statements of truth that are verifiable, then the burden is on us when somebody's in sin to follow Matthew 18 and to go right to the person and to confront them in love. But slander doesn't do that. Slander prefers the ambush approach. Hit without warning and hit without detection. Then he says how we speak can be sinful. That's, that's talking in a way that's intentionally unrighteous and design, is designed to damage the person personally, emotionally, and spiritually, and relationally. Now, there are too many ways we can do that, so I'm not even going to list those. Let's go to the next one. Scorn. Scorn comes directly from our pride. Scorn is the diminishing and demeaning of another person, whether it's justified or not in our minds, for the express purpose of making them feel inferior and unaccepted. Scorn has a bite to it. It's harsh and it's sarcastic and it's critical and it's personal. It has a tone of condemnation, which is ironic because the person who is scorning is usually more guilty of something than the person that they're scorning. And they do it to cover their own lives so nobody will notice them. Now, go back and look at that because that's difficult and the breath all came out of the crowd a little bit. So go back and look at it in context. The passage is about ascending to and abiding in the presence of the Lord who is holy and who has declared us to be holy. But the enemy knows all about pride, doesn't he? That's his milieu. That's, that's, that's what he lives in. So his attack on us is to try to get us, rather than ascending to the presence of God and abiding in the presence of God and living in holiness, instead of that, the enemy's goal is to drag us down. As we're walking confidently to Zion, you remember the old hymn? We're marching to Zion. How many know that hymn? Like four of you. Oh, good. That was more than I thought. We're marching to Zion, beautiful, beautiful Zion. We're marching upward to Zion, the beautiful city of God. What are the pictures I showed you? That's Zion. The city of God. Well, as we're marching confidently by faith in holiness, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, you know what the devil's doing? He's grabbing our back and he's trying to pull us and drag us back. And if we don't keep our legs pumping and keep moving forward and keep advancing in our walk and in our holiness, the devil will just keep dragging us back. And eventually we'll say, you know, I'm kind of tired of this. this, Maybe I'll just let go and relax just a little bit. You know, I have been pushing it awful hard. He wants to drag us back down. And in this case, chapter 15, verse 3, he wants to drag us down by how we talk. Now, the enemy proved that. Because division and strife comes from pride and selfishness. That's not a debatable point. That's a true statement. So he will try to incite us, listen now, to be divisive and to create conflict by what we say to and about each other. 
Have you noticed over the last month, as we have been under increased and sometimes very obvious spiritual attack, that there's also been an increase in little discussions and little debates and little side conversations and and kind of opinions and criticisms and, and all that kind of stuff. As I said two weeks ago, be very, very careful about what you say and how you say it and who you say it to. Because there's always a little angle to our motives. The Bible says, be swift to hear and slow to what? Tell me. Slow to speak. I have not lived well by that many times in my life. Always got an opinion, always ready to pop in, always ready to make the conversation go better with my brilliant thoughts. And we start to interrupt people. I interrupted somebody the other day that I really respect. And I was like, he looked at me and I'm like, I'm so sorry I interrupted you. And I thought, I do this all the time. Do it to my wife, do it to my kids, do it to my friends. It's pretty hard to make mistakes when you're listening, right? It's pretty hard to commit sin when you're listening. But when we talk, oh, James 3 says, the tongue is a world of fire. Just sets everything on flame. Be swift to hear and slow to speak. Let me say that includes tomorrow night. Don't even allow your heart and mind to engage in in what the devil will do to feed a critical spirit or to create dissension. Every person that loves Jesus Christ, every person that names the name of Jesus Christ, every church that loves the Lord and preaches his word faithfully and without compromise is a body of believers and brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. And we can have differences even within this room on minor theological points, and we can have disagreements on the practice of ministry. But we have to remember that we need to represent Christ well, and that applies every day and every time we meet together as a body. So diligently guard your words and your actions, and I will do the same. Jealously defend the gospel and the name of Jesus Christ, and sacrificially protect his church and this church. Because I'm telling you, opposition is here, and it will continue, and I feel strongly in my heart that as we get closer to November, and there's an increase in the volatility of world situations, and we're just getting started, that we're actually going to see a very dramatic increase in the strength of spiritual attack against Christians and churches and within churches. In fact, I got an email this week from a member of the congregation that emphasizes the person said, I really felt driven that as we as a body need to be on guard, listening with and for the Spirit's wisdom and discernment in all conversations, no matter how simple or trivial they may seem, words mean things and they hurt, even if that wasn't the intent with which they were uttered. Listen, the enemy is working hard to drag us down. And he will, if we yield to the temptation to do the opposite of what God tells us here in these two passages. He will drag us down. He will do damage. He will divide. So how does it play out? What do we need to be guarding against and looking out for? Let me give you four things real quick. What should we guard against and look out for? Number one, we should guard against and look out for criticism. 
especially criticism that's behind somebody's back or criticism to somebody's friends. I said something when Harbor Rock first started, and I'll be emphasizing it again in the membership classes, that if someone criticizes another person in this church to you or they say that somebody's done something to offend them, you have permission to stop them mid-sentence and to tell them that you are going to go with them to that person and verify the situation. If they will not go, you need to tell them to be quiet or you need to walk away. If they will go, then somebody is going to have to apologize for something. Right? Once the meeting happens, somebody's going to have to do some apologizing. And you go with them. If they brought you into it, then you have the courage to go with them and say, stop, hold on a second. You're talking about a brother or sister in Christ. Let's go go talk to them. Oh, no, 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 I don't want want to bug them. (laughs) Well, you talked about them. So you're bugging them. You're bugging me. Let's go. Well, no, it's just something I heard a rumor. Then why are you spreading it? Watch out for criticism. This is not being harsh. This is being biblical, right? This is protecting the body of Christ. Number two, guard against and look out for people who are angling. What do I mean by that? I mean working a relationship or subtly manipulating a situation to gain favor. I want you to be very, very, very cautious about this. It's one of the devil's favorite tactics. God never angles, right? God never manipulates. Why? Because he's a God of truth. God doesn't need to angle or manipulate because everything he does involves truth. But the enemy doesn't like truth. In fact, he hates truth. So he twists the truth. Even did it with Jesus. Said, hey, well, the Bible says this. (laughs) Jesus, I think Jesus looking at him and go, do you have any idea what context is? And you know, I, 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 I wrote that. I'm, I'm actually the word. You have the audacity to come up and try to twist me? He will twist the word. He will twist what's true. Number three, guard against and look out for gossip. Bible speaks very clearly about gossip. Gossip is spreading rumors or quote-unquote news about other people when they're not there. One thing to remember about gossip is that it's usually not completely true. It's filtered through the gospers' selective interpretation of the facts. Well, I heard something, and I don't mean to gossip. If somebody says to you, I don't mean to gossip, guess what they're about to do? Gossip. Yeah, they're about to gossip. So just say, you know what? The Bible talks about gossip, or just walk away. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm busy. Got a call. Got to go. I don't, I don't want to listen to that. You got an issue with that person, go talk to them. How many know there's always a motive for passing along information that's none of your business? There's always a motive. So guard against it. Number four, guard against anything that's disunifying. Things that damage a person's credibility or create conflict within the body, like the others, but even more. This one's done for self-serving reasons because the net effect of creating disunity is that it's offensive to the Lord. The Lord is jealous for his church. This is his body. This is not Paul Rhodes' church. This is not your church. This is not the church of Racine. This is not whatever, whatever. This is God's church. He owns it. He oversees it. He leads it. We're just here. 
This is his church, and he's jealous about it. The Christian church in America is his church. He's jealous about it. He wants it on the right track. And he says, don't you divide my church. Do you think one of the saddest things that ever happened in God's world is all these denominations? Everybody parsing. And I was in a town the other day that three churches of Christ within two miles. And I said, what's going on with that? He said, well, it's all churches that have divided. Same denomination. God loves his church. He's jealous for his church. So let's be very clear that when he says something as a warning about his church, he absolutely means it. Turn over one more passage. We're done. Romans chapter 16. Let's read this and we'll pray. Romans chapter 16, the very last chapter of the, of the book. This is not an easy verse. Thank you for bringing your Bibles and turning. Look at the Spirit's warning. This is Paul as he's writing and greeting a bunch of people and and approving people and affirming them in their faith. Right at the end of all that happiness, greeting one another with a kiss and all the churches of Christ greet you, he comes back with this one line that just kind of sticks out in the middle of all of it. Romans 16, 17. Now I urge you, brethren... Keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. Now that verse has application personally and within the body. And using the metaphor of Psalm 15 and Psalm 24, the church is the holy place of God now. His children are holy vessels. That's where we're called the body of Christ. And Jesus said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. And that certainly applies to the body of Christ. The more something has division, the more it is weakened. And gossip, slander, and division kill churches. And that's why Romans 16, 17 is a key distinction and a marking point within the body. The text says when somebody's doing that, listen now, this is hard. The text says when someone does that, does that keep your eye on them. But the Greek is much stronger than it is here in the English. The word is skopeo. Doesn't matter to you, right? It's the word from which we get the word scope, as in when you scope out something, you look at and examine it. Or we get the words telescope or periscope. That's from the Greek word skopeo. With those tools, with a telescope or a periscope, you are focusing on one thing. And that fits well with the Greek word skopeo because it means to fix your attention on them. When somebody's doing this, look at them, fix your attention on them, watch them, uh, take note of it, mark them, the King James says. It's a better word there. And it says as you're doing that, watch your own back. Because if they're doing it to others, they're going to do it to you. So he says to the church, mark these people. Now this starts by being on guard with our own lives and not doing things out of selfish motives or, or saying words that are critical and damaging or getting in conversations that undermine other people or giving opinions that are less about the Bible and more about us. Defend the church. 
I'm not saying this just in this body. I'm not, I'm not saying we've, we've got a problem. I'm just saying this is what the text says. Who will ascend to the holy hill of God? Those who have clean hands and a pure hearts and walk in integrity and walk in righteousness, but also those who watch their mouths. Those who are careful, those who don't cause division. You know, the military doesn't allow that. Sports teams, for the most part, don't allow it. The corporate world doesn't allow it. So of all places, it should never be allowed in the body of Christ. This is not just some organization called a church. Ah, we go to church. Let me remind you, this is the body of Jesus Christ. And if anyone seeks to divide it, they will ultimately answer to him. That's why Paul uses, look at it one more time, we'll pray. He says, mark those who do this. Watch them, warn them. And if they don't change and they keep doing it, the Bible actually says, treat them like non-believers. Can you imagine such a thing? you imagine somebody getting to that place? Now, those aren't my words. Those are the words of the Holy Spirit. And over the last month, we've had some great discussion. It's been hard sometimes. We've had some great discussion about the Holy Spirit and about how he works. But, but let's make sure that we hear his words of instruction and warning very clearly because there's really no point discussing all the other stuff unless we're willing to live by this. This is our challenge for all of us in the days ahead. How will you and I live? Who will ascend to the holy hill of the Lord? Those who have a clean hand and pure heart, who walk in integrity and love and speak truth, but also those who don't slander and don't do evil and don't scorn and don't create disunity. That's a hard word this morning in July. But it's a necessary word for us this morning and this week. Are you ascending or are you descending? Are you marching upward to Zion, the beautiful city of God, where God says, come and dwell and abide in my presence? Are you kind of slipping back, falling into things, allowing things, yielding to temptation? Which is it this morning? I pray we're moving toward holiness and I pray God will continue to put his hand on this church and use us in powerful ways for him. Let's close our eyes. We're early, so permit me just a minute or two more. I know this has been a very difficult and challenging word this morning. It's been difficult to preach. I know my own guilt in this. But this is the word of the Lord, and this is the word of the Lord that he gave us for this morning. So let me just appeal to you and challenge you for a moment in the quiet of this room. Keep your heart focused on the Lord. What is God challenging you with this morning? Yielding to temptation, giving in, allowing slippage falling back, not defending your faith, not defending the name of Jesus Christ, a casualness about your walk, hesitation to stand for the Lord and culture, broken relationships that you refuse to mend, the way you talk, conversations you're having that are not productive, that are 
divisive. You know it, but you've still done it. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's all of them. Maybe it's none of them. We have been given the gift of salvation. We have been given the gift of God's spirit indwelling us. We have been given a new nature, a transformed mind, a renewed heart. We deserved none of it. We did nothing to earn it. And God has done it for us and he's called us now to abide in his presence. Well, we're only going to be able to abide in his presence if we're clean. God doesn't accept impurity. So just take 20, 30 seconds. Confess anything that's hindering this to the Lord right now in your heart. He will forgive. But we've got to confess it to him. Our Lord, none of us are able on our own to ascend to the holy hill of God. To be in your presence and to dwell with the Almighty. But Lord, we thank you and praise you again that through Jesus Christ you have made that all possible. And that you have changed us, Lord, as the redeemed of the Lord. As those whose lives have been transformed by your grace alone as those who are given a renewed mind. We ask you, Lord, to challenge us and convict us and encourage us and help us to live as those with a clean hands and a pure heart who walk in integrity and love truth and speak words that edify and build up and strengthen and show love. Lord, every single person in this room needs that this morning. And I pray that our hearts right now are pouring out before you and asking you to do this work in our life. And Lord, that we would see a dramatic transformation in this body. Lord, it's a loving congregation. And we love you. But Lord, now take us to that next level of holiness and sanctification, especially in the way we talk. Lord, we thank you for what you're doing in our midst. We're humbled by it. You have done so much and you have so much more to do. Prepare our hearts for that, Lord. You want to do things that are spectacular to bring glory to your name and to bring people to Jesus Christ. Lord, people in this city need Jesus Christ. Use us. Use us as a catalyst to draw them to your grace and mercy. Guide us and lead us as a church. Give us wisdom and strength. And Lord, may we walk in holiness so we would be pleasing to you. We thank you for forgiving our sin. And we thank you for doing this work. We will praise you every day and tell you that we love you because we do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.